All right, Jesse, last week's ghostly trial was absolutely wild. What's the story this week? A disturbed nurse goes on a killing spree spanning 16 years and 10 hospitals. As the body count rises to unfathomable numbers, one brave nurse and colleague goes undercover to bring the so-called angel of darkness to justice. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about unmet desires, bad reactions, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are so honored this week to welcome and shout out a new set of amazing patrons. Rose A, Brittany E, and Pamela A. Welcome, everyone. So, Andy, number one, I want to tell you guys that I'm battling a cold somewhat. So if I sound a little different today, we are going to just soldier on through. And I hope you can bear with me. We can definitely bear with you, babe. (laughs) There's a little rasp going on today. Today we have a different type of story. It is not our usual type of love murder story. So if you are a regular listener, welcome back. And if this is your first episode, hello. The reason it's a departure is because, as you know, Andy, we are called love slash murder. So we mostly do cases that are about crimes of passion, deeply personal and usually love-related murders with lots and lots of backstory. But today, we are covering Charlie Cullen, the nurse who is believed to be the most prolific serial killer of all time, with estimates that the number of his victims could be as high as 400. It's insane. You actually inspired this episode, Andy. Why? So on our latest Current Affairs, we were talking about Lucy Letby, the UK nurse who is currently on trial for murdering seven babies and attempting to murder 10 more. And you said something along the lines of, I hope some good comes out of this in the form of training, a better procedure, legislature, that this is such a a grim, terrible murder, murderers, um, that you had to believe that maybe some sort of policy would change from it. Do you remember that? Yes. And then when I found out that this movie, The Good Nurse, which is based on the book that we're going to be using today as our primary source, The Good Nurse by Charles Graber was going to be hitting Netflix starring Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne. And so it kind of like seeing that and putting that on my docket to watch and then thinking about what you said about Lucy Letby made me realize that maybe some reason that I have never been that interested in researching these types of angels of darkness or killer nurses or doctor is because there was something so clinical and cold about the crimes But I realized that for the victims and for their loved ones who are left behind, it's anything but impersonal. Every single one of the people who are affected by these lives shattered like spider webs, like when you get that pebble on your windshield. 
to touch innumerable people's lives. And so I thought for that reason, it was an important one to cover. So yes, we'll be using The Good Nurse by Charles Graber. He spent six years meticulously researching and tirelessly interviewing for his excellent book. And to my knowledge, I think he's the only one who has actually interviewed Charlie Cullen. So he definitely has the inside scoop. Highly suggest that you guys check out the book. I think by the time this episode comes out, because we are recording ahead of schedule, because we're going to go away, we're going to see each other tomorrow. By the time this comes out, I think it'll be out for a week. So hopefully it's something Andy and I can watch together. Totally. So let's just get into it then. Charles Edmund Cullen was born on February 22, 1960, in West Orange, New Jersey. He was the youngest of eight siblings born to a working-class Irish Catholic family. His father, a bus driver, died when Charlie was only seven months old. It's really sad. The family survived on church charity, disability checks pulled from relatives, and occasional sewing jobs that Mrs. Cullen took in. This was not a happy home. I guess Charlie was quite a bit younger than his younger siblings. It was a kind of a late-in-life, not-so-welcome surprise. And his parents, first of all, his dad was absent, obviously, having died when Charlie was seven months. But his parents were very exhausted by the time that he came along. And substance abuse issues plagued the family. So Charlie would claim that he was abused by his drug-addicted older brothers and his sister's boyfriends. And the bullying extended to his classmates at school as well. So there was really no place where Charlie felt safe, loved, or wanted at all. All right. He loved his mother. And I'm sure she did love him in the way that she could. But she was barely making ends meet. She had eight children. She was widowed. She was exhausted. And I only have two kids. I can only imagine with eight, you feel like there's only so much of you to go around. Yeah. And so I think that even when she did lovingly take care of Charlie, it was never enough for him. He always needed more. He always wanted more. And there was just never enough to go around. So trigger warning, guys, we're going to be talking about a lot of suicide attempts today because Charlie will attempt suicide very, very many times. They estimate probably more than 20 throughout his life. Oh, my God. Even when I was writing this episode, there was just some attempts I didn't even put into the story because it got repetitive almost. So there's going to be a lot of suicide attempts. If this is not your cup of tea, then you might want to skip this one because it comes up quite a bit. But of course, I don't go into detail. So his first suicide attempt happened when he was only nine years old. And he mixed the contents of a church chemistry set with milk and drank it down in an attempt to poison himself. What's a church chemistry set? So he went to a church school. So I think it was just some sort of learning chemistry set that they give to little kids for science class. Okay. Yeah. So that's what he used. Unfortunately, it wasn't a very potent chemistry set as they were giving it to a nine-year-old, so he survived. Charlie's next attempt at suicide happened after the shocking and sudden death of his mother during his senior year of high school. His sister had epilepsy and reportedly had a seizure while driving with their mother in the car. Unfortunately, a wreck ensued and Mrs. Cullen lost her life. Oh, my God. Yeah, so he's already lost his dad as a baby, never knew him. Now, his mother, which was his tether to affection and reality, is also gone. And what was extremely traumatic was it's not clear whether he misunderstood the phone call or what happened. But when he received a phone call from the hospital, I think they were trying to say that she was dead on arrival and that they were going to be doing something with her body. 
he thought she was still alive. So he thought he was rushing to the hospital to go see her and see if she's going to pull through. And when he arrived, they were like, no, she's down in the morgue. We're cremating her. So he didn't even get a chance to say goodbye. God. That was deeply, deeply traumatizing for him. So, yes, shortly after that, he uh, attempted suicide once more, and that landed him for a little while in a psychiatric hospital. After that, Charlie dropped out of high school and joined the Navy. He signed on to train as an electronics technician, but soon Charlie tired of both electronics and the Navy. He did not like taking orders, and he was constantly being hazed, and they referred to him as things like Charlie Fishbelly. It was the type of shower towel slapping like locker room thing it's really distasteful and it was constant and usually in these types of environments new people would come in and then you'd start hazing them but it seemed like there was something about charlie's personality where he was constantly being the one hazed even by guys who were coming in after him or you're younger than him it was just something about how he reacted to things he was the type of guy who is not aggressive at all like he wouldn't get in your face he wasn't gonna be macho but he was like on the thinner side and he would like mumble things under his breath or like give dirty looks or something in a way that rubbed I guess these navy guys the wrong way so yeah he hated it and he tried to get out of his six-year contract but they would not let him go so he just kept getting busted in rank and given pay reductions and worse assignments until his last year he was just slopping out latrines And he had developed a bad case of alcoholism to the extent that if his booze ran out, he would drink Listerine or cleaning fluid. Yeah, that's not good. By the time he left the service, he had attempted suicide three more times. Around what year is this? So he was born in 1960. So if he's 18 to... 20-something, then... Late 70s. Yeah, late 70s, early 80s. So Charles Graber wrote about his suicide attempts, but for all of his suicide gestures, the fact was that Charlie wouldn't kill himself. Not really. The nuns in Catholic school had taught him that suicide was a sin, and Charlie didn't want to end up in purgatory. But he could make himself sick, and in many ways, sick was better. Nobody loves you the way they do when you're dying. So you'll see throughout this episode that a lot of his attempts are about receiving attention, receiving care, about how when he goes to the hospital after a suicide attempt, there's so many people working on him, making sure he's okay, talking to him, making him comfortable, giving him that attention that he did not get in his family or his childhood, and he didn't even have like a beloved best friend or anything. So that is more, it seems like, the impetus behind these attempts than actually truly wanting to end his life. Yeah. Charlie was finally discharged in 1984 and enrolled at Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing in Mount Clare, New Jersey. This was actually a great experience for Charlie. He enjoyed feminine energy a lot more than male energy. He'd always gravitated towards his mother and his sisters, and he'd been mistreated by men for most of his life. So he felt like all of a sudden this is the situation he wanted to be in because in The 80s, nursing was still pretty much a female-dominated industry. Yep. So he actually got along very well with his classmates. He was a popular student, and he was even voted class president of his nursing class. Mountainside was the hospital where his mother had been taken after her death, the same hospital that he had raged at for bringing her body to the morgue before he could say goodbye. So to be back and successful this time 
felt symbolic. It felt circular and pleasing to him that he had taken a tragedy and gone on this odyssey in the Navy and then come back. And now he was finally where he should be. It was the first time he'd ever felt special and chosen. Well, in school, Charlie worked at various fast food franchises to pay the bills, and it was while moonlighting at a Roy Rogers that he met a young woman named Adrian Baum. Adrian was an ambitious college grad with a degree in business who was working at the burger joint as a manager to pay off her school loans while she looked for a full-time gig in computer programming. Charlie was besotted with her. He had never met somebody like Adrian before. She was very bright, beautiful, looking to the future, and she was impressed with Charlie's work ethic and his self-deprecating personality. She told her friends that she loved that he held three jobs and had been voted the president of his nursing class. He was also very generous and giving with gifts and attention in a way that she almost felt was like too much. Like, oh, Charlie, you don't have to do that for me. No, don't give me. He would bring like presents to the Roy Rogers. But In some ways, she really liked the attention, and to know that somebody cared about her that much was very enticing. The only thing that was like a problem with them is that she felt like Charlie kept some distance between her and his family. He never wanted to talk about his family. He refused to take her back to where he had grown up and show her. She had only met one of his sisters because she had previously worked at Roy Rogers, but he refused to introduce her to his siblings, specifically his brother's. And the only thing she knew of his family was that his brother James had overdosed and died in Charlie's childhood bedroom soon after the couple began dating. Oh, my God. I mean, I feel like back then it was a lot more common to have your family entangled in your relationship a little bit more. It was so much more traditional. But now that wouldn't I feel like that wouldn't be a problem at all. Yeah, my family's got a lot of issues and I don't really want to like dive into that yet. I feel like that's a pretty normal dialogue for a modern relationship. It's very different. I mean, if you need to listen to old songs, it's about how you have to go and get the father's permission just to go on a date or, you know, meet the parents on the third date, even if you're like an adult for some reason. Nah. Yeah. (laughs) It is. It's a very different time. She was like, okay. So when she found out about what happened to his brother and how troubled his family was, she was like, this makes sense. This makes sense that you don't want to like bring me back home for Sunday supper. And we're not getting to know each other on that level. And she basically made a pact with him, like, let's look to the future together. Let's not dwell on these things. Let's do this together. And so they did. They ended up getting engaged six months after their first date. A little fast. They married a week after Charlie graduated from nursing school and honeymooned in Niagara Falls, returning in time for Charlie to start his new job as a nurse in the burn unit of St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey, in June of 1987. The burn unit is not a place for the faint of heart, and truly, bless all of y'all who do this type of work, because, I mean, nurses in general, but the burn unit is particularly difficult emotionally because the treatment of burn victims is unbearably painful for the patient. And recovery rates are very bleak, depending on how much the burns cover the body and how old the patient is. So it can be a very spiritually, emotionally taxing type of job. But Charlie seemed to excel at his first job, at least for a little while. Adrian got an entry-level job as a programmer, and the couple bought a small house in Phillipsburg, New Jersey, They soon welcomed two daughters, but the marriage was far from perfect. Charlie had impressed Adrian during their courtship with his humor and self-awareness. He spoke openly about his tendencies towards depression and alcoholism, 
And he very much presented himself as somebody who had overcome these issues. Yep. And Adrian felt like he had kind of battled those demons to the ground. And also, if he ever did relapse or there was an issue, he would tell her about it because he was very, very open with her about his past struggles. So she felt like he'd be comfortable coming to her in the future. But unfortunately, that was not the case. He started secretly drinking. So he locked a bunch of booze in a footlocker in his basement. And if she was at work or she was asleep or he just was had a chance to be alone, he would go downstairs, lock himself in the basement and drink. Even worse than the secret drinking, though, was that she was concerned that Charlie was abusing the family dogs. So a little trigger warning here for animal abuse. She didn't know exactly what he was doing. There were times because they worked different shifts because he often worked the night shift that he would be up with the dog while she would be sleeping and she'd hear the dog crying or him screaming and she'd be like, what are you doing? And, and the dog's like wailing. And then there was another occasion where she went to work and he was home with a baby. And when he came home, the dog was missing. And she said, where's the dog? And he's like, well, I left the door open. And I guess she just wandered out. And she's like, what are you talking about? And so there was just a couple occasions. There was another occasion where he dropped off one of their dogs at a dog shelter. And when she came home, he admitted it. And she had to go back and like beg for her dog back and apologize for her husband. So there was a lot of like weird stuff going on about their own dogs. And then their neighbor. I mean, like already file for divorce. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now she has these two young babies with him as well. So she's like, what the hell? They also had a neighbor who had an elderly beagle named Queenie. And it was it was like a running joke that anytime Queenie got out of her yard, she always ended up in theirs. Queenie wasn't very smart, huh? <laughs> She's like a sweet little doddering beagle. And so one day Adrian opened the door and she saw Queenie's owner and she was crying. And she's like, what's wrong? Did Queenie get out again? And she's like, yes. And we found her. She was dead in the alleyway next to the Cullen's house. And she said, we rushed her to the vet and the vet said that she had passed away. And it seemed likely that she had been poisoned. 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 So Adrian is now connecting the dots here. Oh, my God. Poor woman. Just as the neighborhood dogs began disappearing, patients at St. Barnabas began dying at an accelerated rate and no one could figure out why. On February 11th, 1991, a pharmacy nurse named Pam Allen brought a suspicious IV bag to the hospital's risk manager. The bag was sent to a pathologist. It was supposed to only contain saline and heparin, but a lab test showed that it contained insulin as well. Three days later, on Valentine's Day, a critical care unit patient named Anna Byers was placed on a heparin drip and within a half hour was showing signs of an intense insulin overdose. When the doctor ordered the bag of heparin removed, she recovered. Down the hall, a patient named Fred Belf was experiencing the same thing. Luckily, both patients were able to be saved before they coded. So we're going to talk about codes and coding today. And I am not a nurse or a medical professional, obviously. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about this in the past. But it essentially means that there is an immediate need for medical attention or the person will die. From what I understand, there's different types of codes and a code blue is like imminent death. And, and then it seems like synonymously, the people in the book that I read used it for also they coded as in they died. When they combed through the records, the hospital discovered that patients had been 
turning mysteriously hypoglycemic and coding for months. They soon discovered puncture marks in several IV bags, which indicated that someone had been intentionally and repeatedly poisoning IV bags with insulin for months at St. Barnabas. Honestly, I'm impressed. (laughs) That they figured it out? Yes. How could you think? You work in a hospital. Like, how could you think that that's like, my mind wouldn't go there. And then the fact that they like figured it out and saw that. I mean, it's really impressive. The pharmacy nurse, Pam Allen, had originally brought the suspicious IV bag because it was it seemed over full. That's why she brought it. She didn't even know that there was insulin until they tested it. It hadn't been used on anyone. She was just like, this doesn't seem right. It's like full overflowing to the brim. And that's not what they look like. So the attention to detail is very good. You're correct. But now how do they find out who's doing this? So they started interviewing all of the nurses and anyone who had access to these IV bags. And most of the people that they interviewed were freaked out. They were horrified. They were nervous for their jobs. They were like, of course, I wouldn't do anything like this. That's crazy. Immediately, the investigators, and this was an internal investigation through the hospital, pointed out Charlie. The fact is that he was cool as a cucumber. He didn't seem concerned at all about this. And when they were like, are you the one doing it? He's like, you can't prove anything. He didn't say, no, I didn't do it. He said, you can't prove anything. So they're like, yeah, we don't like that. But the problem was they kind of couldn't prove anything because all of the patients who had died had various combinations of ailments that had landed them in the critical care unit anyway. So it was hard to parse through who had died from the poisoned IV bags who hadn't, who had died from whatever they had that brought them into the critical care unit. And how they couldn't prove it was Charlie was because he was not technically employed directly through the hospital. He was what is considered a floater, and he was employed by a staffing agency. So he had erratic shifts. He didn't have regular shifts. Trying to cross-index the times that people had died with when he was there, and not to mention if you poison IV bags, you don't necessarily have to be there when people die. It was near impossible to prove that he had done it. The hospital security team brought the case to the police, but based on the evidence that they had, the police, the external like town police said that they still thought it was something that the hospital should handle internally. They were like, we don't have enough to open a case on this. Get us more information and come back to us. So they tried. They placed stop motion cameras in the med storage room for a few weeks, but they did not catch Charlie. When two more patients crashed in October of 1991, they were frustrated and suspicious, but still could not prove anything. Eventually, the only answer was to stop calling Charlie in on shifts, essentially firing him from St. Barnabas. And when Charlie left, the insulin spike stopped happening. Can you only get insulin in like a medical locker unit or can you buy that somewhere else? I don't know for sure. I think it's protected because of its capacity to kill people. I mean, that's how Lucy Letby was killing babies as well, I think. Charlie had, of course, been indeed spiking the IV bags in the storage room at random for months, in addition to directly killing his own patients in the burn unit. When Charlie was let go, but the cops never showed up at his door and there was no follow-up investigation, he figured the hospital was either stupid or afraid of liability issues or both. 
Seems likely that this first experience of getting away with multiple murders emboldened Charlie, and he went on his merry murdering way to hospital number two, Warren Hospital in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. And the craziest thing about us, we're going to talk about several hospitals. He works at 10 different hospitals before he is stopped. About the transition to each of these other hospitals, every single time he doesn't hide a goddamn thing on his resume, he puts the previous hospital where he had issues on for a reference, and yet he still gets hired every single time. Reminds me of when priests relocate. 100%. That is exactly what I thought of. It's basically all of these hospitals protecting their own liability versus protecting their patients. So he was hired at Warren Hospital in January of 1992. At home, Adrian was relieved that Charlie had gotten another job so quickly because they had a mortgage and two very small children. But she was alarmed by the whole situation because when she asked him what the hell happened at St. Barnabas, he said that, oh, I was just part of this witch hunt, essentially. He didn't want to go along with the nurses union to picket. And and he said he would care for his patients no matter what. And he's like, so when I refused to go along with most of the nurses, they pinned this poisoned IV bag thing on me. Oh, so he's like, if you hear anything, if the cops come and they have to interview me, because he was really thinking that he was like waiting for the shoe to drop. He was waiting for the police to come. So he's like, if they come to interview me, I just want you to know it was all a setup. I didn't poison any IV bags. They're just setting me up because I was against the nurses union. So he's one of those, I don't know what that is, but where it's the same thing with like him telling her that he has addiction issues with drinking. It's like, it almost like gets it off of his shoulders. Like it like cleanses himself of the, of the lie or of the like sin because he's saying it out loud to her. It's like hedging. It's like, well, you already knew this when it happens or yeah, softening the blow somehow or preparing them for a future that may or may not happen 100%. So she was definitely happy about him getting another job. And she also thought, well, if he had really been doing something that terrible, he wouldn't have been hired within three days at another place. So she was like, I mean, I hope he wasn't doing it. I mean, they're always short on nurses, so. I think that's the other problem in this situation. And that's, and we talk about it later in a different hospital that they were just so desperate for nurses. <sighs> so yeah, so at first she was like, okay, well, maybe he was telling the truth. But over time, she just, I mean, her gut was screaming at her that there was something seriously wrong here. It was the dogs, the alcoholism, her worries about her own children. His multiple suicide attempts, she was very concerned that she would be working and he would try to attempt suicide because he was doing things like dramatically pretending to set up suicide so that she would like pay attention to him or give him attention. And she just knew it wasn't a healthy environment for her children to grow up in. So eventually she separated from Charlie for her daughter's sakes. In November of 1992, she served him with divorce papers while he was working at the Warren ICU. He was humiliated at being served in front of his colleagues, and he was also really miserable about the end of his marriage. So he begged Adrian, okay, we don't have to stay married, but can you let me at least stay in the house for a couple months while I figure out where I'm going to live? And she did because she's a kind-hearted person, but that was a big mistake. What followed was a handful of torturous months during which Adrian was forced to call the police on Charlie for domestic violence. After one such visit by the police, Charlie downed 20 pills with a bottle of Cabernet and woke up in the ICU. Well, 
He was delighted, though, to wake up and find his coworker and friend, Michelle, at his side. Michelle helped him get into a really good psychiatric hospital. She brought him flowers every day. She stayed by his side, and she even helped him find a rental house that he could move into after he was released from the hospital. Charlie immediately went from being obsessed with his ex-wife and kind of torturing her to, who cares, now I'm into Michelle. Michelle was a coworker of his who seemed to be in a similar situation. She was also going through a contentious divorce. She was also a newly single parent. To top it off, Michelle had an ongoing on and off relationship with a boyfriend that didn't sound too great. So they used to have something that they called pity parties, where they both kind of talked about what there was going on in their life and commiserated with one another. And eventually that turned into friendship, which bloomed into a little bit more than friendship. She was kind of into Charlie at the beginning because he was funny and kind and sensitive, and he was a lot different than the guys that she'd gone out with before. So Michelle decided to break her rule about dating coworkers, and she decided to go out with Charlie a couple times. But yeah, I would uh, ring this one up as immediate regret, immediate regret on Michelle's part. This is like, we always say a guy is in, sometimes it's unavoidable. God knows when we were in our early 20s in the restaurant industry, I dated some people I worked with, I'm sure. I'm trying to remember who. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. But yeah, don't date your coworkers. It's a bad idea. Especially in that type of environment. Oh, that intense, like, nursing yeah. environment in an ICU? Bro got brought in for, like, major suicide attempt to the ICU unit that he works at and then had to go to a psych hospital. Like, it seems like you've already got a lot on your plate babes. She certainly did. She absolutely did. And now she had more because even though she only went out with him a couple times, he was completely in love with her. Yeah. And he started telling her he loved her right away before. I don't even know if they consummated their relationship, to be honest. But he was like, I'm in love with you. He started bringing her things and dropping things off at the nurse's station. Like she mentioned at one time she liked brownies and he would bring her a brownie every single day. Too much, man. Like It was no. too much. I mean, like, I guess some people don't like a chase, but, like, got a little bit of a chase. Well, yeah, he also would come in on his days off to just hang around the nurse's station and see her. And she's like, this is too much. And she was also getting back together with her ex-boyfriend. So it was twofold. This was a mess. I made a mistake. And she tried to subtly tell him, hey, this isn't working. I really need to take some time for myself. It's not you. It's me. But he wasn't getting it. So eventually she just tried to ghost him. She just like made herself scarce if they had to work together. She was always involved with the patient when he came around. She didn't hang out at the same nurse's station. And she stopped answering or returning his phone calls. So his response was, well, Michelle's been through a lot like me. We're both depressed. She just must be really down and she must need me to save her. So I'm going to go check on her. So after he called her like 30 times one night and she didn't answer, he ended up going over, stalking her house, eventually using a brick to break in and then standing in her apartment while she and her child were sleeping in the apartment. Oh, my God. Yeah. Michelle very wisely called the police, got a restraining order and filed criminal charges. This was at least pretty much rock bottom for Charlie. Over the next year or so, he would lose his custody battle with Adrian, giving her full custody of both of their children, and she also got a restraining order. 
One thing that's interesting is that during the custody case, Charlie had to take a polygraph because Adrian was saying that their children were in danger to be alone with him. And he took a polygraph to prove that her allegations were not true. And he passed with flying colors. I mean, it didn't matter. She still got full custody. But he talked later, I believe, to Charles Graber, the author, about how he learned how to pass polygraphs because of working with EKGs that do very similar things. And that throughout these next few years in these many hospitals, there's always going to be suspicion cast Charlie's way. And he'll always say, well, let me take a polygraph. And he always passed it every single time, which is another reason why we can't use this as evidence, especially in court. In court, yeah. The criminal case went just as well as the custody case, which is to say, badly. He initially tried to represent himself, which was a disaster. You know what they say about trying to represent yourself? The attorney uh, who tries to represent themselves has an idiot as a client. Oh, my God, stop. (laughs) I mean, true, though. (laughs) Yeah. So that was going poorly, of course. So he did end up hiring a defense attorney, but that attorney quit only three days after being hired due to Charlie's difficult personality. So Charlie then went back to representing himself. And when he went to court, instead of talking about the charges against him, he was just ranting about the attorney who had jilted him and about how a defense attorney should be able to just quit on their client. And as a nurse, he would never just quit on a patient. And so this is really unfair. No, you're just murdering them. You psycho. Agreed. Agreed. But yeah, it was just such a mess that the prosecutor was like, let's just make a plea deal. And Charlie had no money. He was exhausted. And he's like, sure. So he ended up pleading guilty to lesser charges of harassment and defiant trespass. He was given just probation and a fine. That night, he went home and drank some more wine, took some more pills. And this time, he drove himself to the hospital before he passed out. I wonder, like, it always makes me so curious about if he didn't grow up in a religious environment, if the attempts would have been different. Whether he would have crossed the finish line? I don't know. You know, because if he didn't want to do it because of purgatory— Or would he actually still have wanted it for the attention that he was getting after to find his new companion, essentially? I really do think it was for the attention. So the purgatory was an excuse? I mean, listen, if you're going around murdering people, you're not really worried about being stuck in purgatory, are you? That's what I wonder. Yeah. You should be in every layer of Dante's Inferno. I think he just wanted people caring for him. I think he wanted to be loved and cared for and he wanted that attention. That's all. Well, that's not the right way to go about it. Well, clearly. Clearly it is not. (laughs) I mean, actually, it's interesting that you're at that spot because I actually wrote in my notes that he just wanted someone to love him and that these seem like desperate cries for attention, maybe the attention he always sought and never got enough of from his mother. This would also make me think that maybe he had a pattern of getting attention from his mom when he attempted suicide at nine or when he was sick and home from school or when he hurt himself somehow. It was the only time he could get her attention. So he's learned this pattern of hurting himself to get the attention that he craves. But unfortunately for humanity, in the absence of love and his inability or not having a desire to complete his suicide, Charlie instead got released by killing others. We talked about the evidence of the Lucy Letby case Remember there was that one 
line that she, I think she wrote in her journal or she said to a friend about how it was cathartic to be in the room when the babies died. Yep. Disgusting. It is. It's completely disgusting. I wonder, though, if that was the same way it was for Charlie. He's feeling depressed. His life is out of control. He had this criminal case against him. He's lost his kids. And this was his sick release. It definitely wasn't sexual in any nature. It wasn't personal. That line with Lucy Letby about it being cathartic, that was the only thing I could think of while I was researching this. On September 1st, 1993, Charlie struck again when he injected Helen Dean, an elderly woman recovering very well from breast cancer surgery, with an overdose of digoxin. Unbelievable. Which is also referred to as DIG by medical professionals, so I'll probably call it digoxin or DIG. I think at the time it was fairly commonly prescribed for certain situations regarding the heart, and it is less now so due to the fact that they discovered it can be easily used to overdose people. Helen's son Larry described a male nurse he had never seen before, because this wasn't even one of Charlie's patients, come into the room and tell Larry that he was going to take care of his mother and he had to go. Now, Larry had no reason to believe that anything was going to happen to his mother. It was a nurse. Yeah, but why does he have to leave? I don't know what excuse he gave Larry. Larry said it was just like, you have to leave right now. I have to do a medical procedure or something. And so he was like, okay, I had to get a coffee anyways. I'll be back soon. But when he returned, his mother was alone and she was really angry. She just kept saying, he stuck me. He stuck me. And then she showed her son a spot on her inner thigh where there was a very small needle mark because Larry got out his Swiss Army knife that had like a magnifying glass on it and he could see the puncture wound. So Larry called the doctor immediately and he said, what the hell was this? My mother just said she got stuck with something. You didn't tell me you were injecting her with anything. What's going on here? And the doctor said, look, I'm looking at her chart now. It doesn't look like any nurse administered anything. She is elderly. She just got out of surgery. She's probably confused. It looks like it could be a bug bite. So he's like, okay, but Helen, who had been on the mend, very quickly after this got extremely violently ill. And when her heart stopped, she could not be revived. Larry complained to his mother's oncologist, who confirmed that they had ordered no injections and no one should have been shooting her up with anything. And Helen's regular nurses identified the male nurse as Charlie Cullen. Larry immediately called the county prosecutor and said that Charlie had murdered his mother. So, yes, of course, Larry immediately called the county prosecutor and he was like, I think this guy just murdered my mother. You have to do something about it. So Charlie was interviewed by Warren Hospital administrators, two people from the prosecutor's office and the major crime investigation unit. They searched his locker, which came up empty. There was no smoking gun there. And then they tested Helen's body for over 100 potentially lethal chemicals, but failed to test for digoxin. What? Yeah. Because of that, Helen's death was ruled as natural causes. <sighs> I mean, it's just its really hard. There's a million different things that can kill you in different combinations, especially having just come out of breast cancer surgery. So... I don't fault them for missing the one that he used to kill them. It's just unbelievably frustrating. So frustrating. Nonetheless, Charlie was placed on administrative leave. He attempted suicide once more, unlocking the door for the ambulance after he placed a 911 call. Stop. 
That's why I don't even like there's more guys that like he does later at different times. It seems like it's whenever he feels like persecuted or stressed. It's one of those things, but it's getting to the point where it's not worth mentioning every single time. The investigation continued after he recovered from his last suicide attempt, and he once again passed a polygraph test. When his medical leave was up, Charlie decided it was time to move on as suspicion grew at Warren, and he went down to Hunterdon Hospital. Again, he put both St. Barnabas and Warren on his resume, but either they never called or for some reason his old hospitals gave him a fine reference. We don't know, but in any case, he started at Hunter Dunn in 1994 in the ICU. And by October, his nurse supervisor gave him a glowing performance review, writing that Charlie was a patient advocate. He cares about his patient's welfare. He's organized, very giving of his time, has so much to offer, very bright, witty, and intelligent. So at first, it seems like everything's going well. He actually didn't hit the road killing this time. He came in and he was doing a good job. He had begun dating another fellow nurse and things were going well. But when his new girlfriend went back to her husband, people began dying on Charlie's watch. Soon, the same supervisor who had given him that stellar report was now getting reports that Charlie was administering unprescribed drugs to some patients and then withholding necessary drugs from other patients. Oh, my God. He was ordering his own unauthorized lab tests, not recording drugs that he had given. And then, of course, a curious rash of digoxin overdoses commenced. When she confronted him, Charlie quit angrily. She had been on his side, obviously. She had given them that good review. And when she tried to confront him, he was like, what are you talking about? You can't prove anything. I'm out of here. After his resignation from Hunterdon in October of 1996, Charlie drove up the road to Morristown Memorial and was hired right away despite the HR department flagging several discrepancies in his stated dates of employment at other hospitals. At Morristown, Charlie didn't even try to do a good job, not even for a little while. The morning shift would arrive to find Charlie's patients cowering in their own blood, and there would be just mess, one guy said that he had counted it. He left 25 soiled and bloody washcloths in the sink. It was just unhygienic. It was disgusting. Clearly, these patients were getting mistreated. But what's more is that his coworkers also witnessed him carelessly loading the wrong doses of drugs into patients' IVs. He was at Morristown for less than a year before he was fired for poor performance. Charlie attempted to sue Morristown for wrongful termination, but eventually ran out of steam and money. Having burned bridges with New Jersey hospitals, Charlie moved over the state border to try his luck in Pennsylvania. I was going to say, New Jersey's not that big. What are we doing, hospitals? It's just they're all covering their own asses. I mean, it gets worse. It gets worse. He was hired at Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Allentown, with a reference from Hunterdon Hospital that claimed that Charlie was an excellent nurse who gave good care and was excellent with patients. That's apparently somebody at Hunterdon said that about him after he had been fired for all of those terrible offenses. Charlie was deeply in debt now and unable to see his children unless he paid his back alimony and child support. He was stressed. And when Charlie gets stressed, what happens, Andy? I'm pretty sure that he starts murdering recovering patients. Yes, indeed he does. On May 6, 1998, he loaded a syringe with insulin and killed an elderly man with a broken neck. 
Now, this is particularly heinous because when you have an insulin overdose and you go into diabetic shock, you are usually put into a seizures. So if you have broken vertebrae oh in your neck, you can only imagine how painful that would be. He says later that he was trying to help these people. It seems like a later excuse that they were not surviving, but that's not true. Records show many of these people actually were on the mend. And that he also claimed that these were painless ways to go. That is not a painless way to go. No. Charlie was moved out of the ICU and into the psych wing where the patients fought back against him. There was one time that he attempted to inject a woman who wasn't his patient and she tried to stop him. And what ended up was a big fight that ended up with him breaking her wrist. Okay, I'm obsessed with the psych patients fighting back. Fighting back. They're like, screw you, buddy. We know that you're not here for the right reasons. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Andy, one of the most unfortunate things about life is that it doesn't come with a user manual or a helpful, informative YouTube explainer video. Absolutely. And navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, new relationships, or becoming a parent. 100%. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills which makes therapy the closest thing we have to a tour guide to help us figure out this ride of life. That's why we're so excited to be sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp has connected over 3 million people with licensed therapists. It's convenient and accessible anywhere and 100% online. I think one of the biggest misperceptions around therapy is that it's only for people who are dealing with some big, huge issue. Yep, Because in reality, therapy can be such a positive part of so many different types of people's lives. Whether it's dealing with anxiety or depression, working on some sort of emotional healing, or just having someone to offload normal, everyday stress with. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash lovemurder. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash lovemurder. After less than a year at Liberty, Charlie was fired for not following proper drug protocol. He was only out of work for two days before he was once again gainfully employed at Hospital Number 6, Easton Hospital, where he began to work in the week between Christmas and New Year 1998. And he wasted absolutely no time before killing again. Yeah, no, he's spiraling. He's in the spree mode right now. Vortex. Yep. Adamar Shram was on the mend when a male nurse entered his room and told his daughter that he needed to take her father out of the room for some tests. She noticed that he did have a syringe with him. And so she asked him, what was that going to be for if he was just taking him out of the room for some tests? And he said, oh, it's just in case your dad's heart stops on the way. And she was like, that's really weird because he doesn't have any heart problems, but okay. And so at that point, visiting hours were pretty much over anyway. It was nighttime. And so she said, well, I'll just say goodnight to you now, Dad. You go do your tests, and then I'll come back in the morning. But when she returned on the morning of December 29th, 1998, her father, Mr. Schramm, who had been 
very much on the mend, was now very, very, very sick. His blood pressure had dangerously plummeted. But then Charlie wasn't on that shift that day. She stayed with him all day. He seemed to get a little bit better. So she was like, okay, it's going to be okay. But then this happened. According to Kristen's recollections to author Charles Graber, on the third afternoon, Christina received a strange call from her father's longtime GP, Dr. Robert Silverman. Silverman told Christina that somebody in the hospital, Silverman did not know who or why, had ordered a series of unauthorized blood tests for her father, which had turned up equally mysterious results. Audemars Schramm's blood contained digoxin, a drug that he had never been prescribed. Silverman described the digoxin levels as being off the charts. Dr. Silverman couldn't explain any of this, but promised to call back with the results of a follow-up test. At 1.25 in the morning, Dr. Silverman called again, in shock. The new tests were consistent, and Christina's father was dead. Oh, my God. Please listen to what I'm about to tell you, Silverman said. When you get to the hospital, they will ask you if you want an autopsy performed. If I were you, I would say yes. Because of the digoxin, Silverman said. He didn't think he should say more. So she did go forward with the autopsy, even though Charlie stopped by the room and said, your father definitely wouldn't want an autopsy. You shouldn't get this. And she was like, screw you, buddy. Yeah, I'm getting an autopsy. She's like, I'm your worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. When a lethal level of digoxin was discovered in Audemars Schramm's body, the autopsy was turned over to the county coroner. By the time questions and suspicions began to circulate about Charlie's potential involvement in the death, he had already quit. By March 1999, he had moved down the road to the Lehigh Valley Hospital, where he worked in a burn unit once again. He stayed in Lehigh for just about a year, killing with impunity, this time doing so, he said, to spare his patients the pain of life with their significant burns and injuries. Later, Charlie would confess to killing at least four to five people during his time at Lehigh, though only two people, Matthew Matern and Sheila Danielchik, were able to be confirmed, but many, many more were suspected. When the nurses began to turn on Charlie, he tried to commit suicide once more by lighting a charcoal barbecue on fire in his bathtub, which I think it was a small basement apartment. I think he was trying to die by smoke inhalation, carbon monoxide poisoning. But his landlady lived above him, clearly got a whiff of what was going on and called the police who put a stop to the whole thing. Yeah, you can smell charcoal like when the house is burning it five blocks away outside. Yeah, I don't think you're going to get away with it right underneath your landlady. Uh, luckily for Charlie, the population in the Lehigh Valley had been booming at this time and nurses were badly needed. With his great many years of experience, he was able to leave Lehigh and move on to St. Luke's, a prestige hospital in Fountain Hill. He even scored a $5,000 signing bonus. Holding aside the murdering, Charlie was a nightmare coworker. He inappropriately hit on his female coworkers. He did really weird stuff too. Like there was one coworker he liked, and so he started sending her anonymous admirer messages and little gifts. And then he made up a persona for it, this guy whose name she didn't know. And then when the unit was all like a Twitter about it, like, who could this be? Who is this person? Oh my gosh. And they were all having fun talking about it. He finally revealed that it was him. He's like, guys, it's me. It's been me all along. And they're like, ew, creep. Uh... And he couldn't understand why 
everyone thought it was so weird. He was like, well, you guys were all having fun with it and being like, I wonder what he looks like. I wonder if he's handsome. And I'm just telling you, it's me. I did it. And they're like, that's weird, Charlie. So yeah. And also at this hospital and, and this time in life, there's a lot more men joining the nursing profession. It's a lot less gendered today than it was then. And this was a time during the late 90s where many men were joining the nursing profession. So he was not loving this. He was not loving that there was men there now making fun of him about the whole thing or that they would play hacky sack or that they like goofed off. And because it kind of, I guess, triggered him because of his military experience and his experience with his older brothers and his sister's boyfriends. So he was really miserable at St. Luke's for that reason. And he just started acting out in the typical ways. He started, I, I mean, this is not typical for anyone else. It's typical for Charlie. He started randomly poisoning IV bags again. And he would do stuff like at the end of his night shift, he would hide all of the rolly chairs that lived at the nurse's station in various rooms so that somebody would have to come in for their shift and try to track down these chairs. It was like from the very petty bullshit like that to the insanely murderous. Several nurses began noticing Charlie's unnecessary trips to the med closet and that drugs began to go missing. Charlie, of course, was using some of the drugs to kill patients, but occasionally he was also just tossing them out. He was just getting rid of all of these drugs just to waste the hospital's resources. Oh, my God. When patients began to code at accelerated rates, the nurses all pointed their fingers at Charlie. St. Luke's attorneys called Charlie to a meeting and told him that he had a choice. He could resign and they would give him a neutral reference to go work for someone else, become somebody else's problem, or he could stay and be subjected to an investigation. Charlie, unsurprisingly, took the deal and moved on to hospital number nine, Sacred Heart in Allentown, on June 8th, 2000, only three days after his forced resignation from St. Luke's. Three days, he gets a new job, and they're like, here's our neutral reference for you. Yeah, all of these hospitals need to be held accountable. Absolutely. I don't think any of them responded to Charles Graber for a comment when he wrote this book. Wow. So deeply concerned about the fact that Charlie had moved on so easily and would be treating patients at yet another medical center, seven of his St. Luke's colleagues went to the authorities with their suspicions, but apparently... There was not enough evidence. It looks like that there was some sort of investigation that was begun, but it just never resulted in Charlie being charged for the crime. The nurses here tried. They really tried. They went to the police on their own volition because the hospital wasn't going to do anything about it. But things were looking up for Charlie, who had a new job and a new love. At Sacred Heart, he met a single mother named Kathy, and the two hit it off. So much so that Charlie moved in with Kathy and her sons after only a few months of dating. Meanwhile, during this courtship period, Kathy had taken him in after he had lost his job at Sacred Heart after only a couple months. Apparently, St. Luke's administrators had quietly been calling other hospitals. So even though they officially gave him the neutral reference, I guess they were like quietly crawling around to people they knew and saying, hey, we can't say this officially because we could get in trouble, but you probably shouldn't hire this guy. We would never hire him back. And then there was a senior nurse who worked at Sacred Heart who had worked at Easton when Audemars Schramm had been killed, and she recognized Charlie and still believed that he had been the one that killed Audemars. 
And soon, most of the nursing staff had heard rumors from one person or another, it's a tight-knit medical community, that Charlie was dangerous and potentially murderous. So all of the nurses at Sacred Heart threatened to quit en masse if Sacred Heart did not fire him. This forced the hospital's hand, and they did fire Charlie with the official reason for the termination as being interpersonal conflicts. Oh, my God. But the nurses are really the heroes of this story. Of course. No one was doing anything about this guy. The cops aren't. The hospital administrators aren't. And it's the nurses banding together to go to the police. It's the nurses who are, like, banding together and saying, we're all going to quit unless you get this dangerous person out of our hospital because they're organizing to protect their patients. Well, Charlie didn't much care that he got fired from Sacred Heart. He had gotten the relationship with Kathy out of it. And he had already had a feeling that in Pennsylvania, his time was done. It had already been like, think he'd been away for four years. He'd worked in five hospitals in those four years. But he'd been away from New Jersey long enough that he feels like people had forgotten. There'd been some staff turnover. And so he decided he was going to go back to New Jersey. Despite the fact that St. Luke's administration did call around to local hospitals, they had not passed the warning about Charlie onto the public, the police, or the state nursing board. So they can say, well, quietly we were doing it. Quietly we were saying you guys shouldn't do it. It's a person like this you can't be quiet about. So it was thus that Charlie got hired at what would become his last hospital, Somerset Medical Center. Somerset called Charlie's references and was told by a former supervisor at Warren Hospital that Charlie had displayed good work ethic, conscientiousness, and intelligence. Now, this is one of the ones back in New Jersey. St. Luke's gave their promised neutral reference, which simply confirmed his dates of employment and former position, but didn't say anything bad about him as well. Charlie's killing spree was also growing more difficult to pull off as technology advanced. At Somerset, he had to use two different programs now. He used a Cerner Power Chart, which is a mobile computer database of patients' charts, and a Pixis machine, which was meant to keep track of what meds the nurses were taking out for patients. At Somerset, Charlie met a tall, beautiful 38-year-old blonde nurse named Amy Loughran. This is the inspiration behind Jessica Chastain's character in the movie. There is a brief trigger warning, guys, here for childhood sex abuse, but we'll move quickly through it. So Amy was strong as hell. She is a strong-ass woman. She had survived a really hellacious childhood. She had been repeatedly molested by a close family friend. And then when she had the courage to come forward and tell her family what was going on to get it to stop, they didn't believe her. They said he was a respectable man and he wouldn't do such things. Wow. Yeah. So she had gone through a lot in her life. She had survived bad relationships. She had overcome hardships. But she came out the other side with two beautiful daughters, an RN degree, and a whole lot of panic attacks. When Charlie started, she liked him immediately. He was efficient and attentive to the point of obsession. He was also really good at charting on Cerner. He was always on it. He was easy to work with. And I think that she has a really warm, protective heart because she instantly recognized Charlie as a sensitive soul who had been beaten down by life. She said to Charles Graber that he reminded her of a sad Mr. Rogers. Over long shifts, Charlie confided in her about the bullying he had experienced most of his life and sought counsel on how to manage his increasingly contentious relationship with his live-in girlfriend, Kathy. And Amy called it the Kathy and Charlie show because they were always having some drama. 
In turn, Amy confided in him about one of her greatest secrets. Amy had been diagnosed with advanced atrial fibrillation brought on by prolonged chronic sick sinus syndrome. The result was an erratic heart rhythm insufficient to cycle oxygenated blood between her lungs and her body. It caused crippling panic attacks, panic attacks that could kill her. Amy revealed her condition to Charlie when he discovered her leaning against a wall, unable to breathe one day. He treated her symptoms, promised to keep her secret, and did her rounds for her. This bonded them because Amy felt very supported in that way. Unfortunately, Amy's cardiomyopathy worsened and she collapsed at work. She was rushed to the ER where she was told she would need a pacemaker and she needed to take a leave of absence while she recuperated. Charlie was beside himself. He had become very attached to Amy. And this was a platonic relationship. I think Charlie might have wished it was otherwise, but it was certainly only platonic on Amy's side. Charlie said later that he did not know how many people he killed at Somerset, but it started when Amy got sick. And once it started, he could not stop. There were several people that he could recall killing. In mid-January, he killed a 60-year-old homemaker named Eleanor Stoker with digoxin. Two weeks later, on his own 43rd birthday, Charlie murdered Joyce Mangini and Giacomo Toto using Pavilon, a strong paralytic. On March 11th, he blew out John Schnegler's heart with another medication. Michael Stranko was a bright 21-year-old Seton Hall computer sciences student with an autoimmune disease when Charlie snuffed his life out. The nurses were mystified by the number of code blues, but Charlie soon appeared to be a so-called code genius. People were in awe of the fact that he often knew exactly what drug could be used to bring a patient back to life. So he's straight up killing some people and other ones. He's making them code so he can look good and get positive attention for bringing them back from the brink that he had caused. Yeah, psychopath. That's really fucked up. Somerset admins were concerned about the death toll and put more restrictions on access to certain drugs, insulin included. However, by summer of 2003, Charlie realized that if you punched in a drug order but canceled it, the drug drawer would still open, but then it would register the interaction as a cancellation rather than whatever drug he had been actually taking. So now he's screwing with the Pixis records so they don't necessarily find the drugs that he's actually taking. He continued to kill, attempting to murder a cancer survivor named Jin Kyung Han, who miraculously survived, but of course was put through an unbearably painful situation of them trying to revive her. After surviving cancer. Exactly. On June 28th, Charlie poisoned a reverend named Florian Gal. The reverend's blood work revealed off-the-charts digoxin levels. The hospital was slowly catching on to Charlie, however. They labeled Reverend Gale patient number four. That was the fourth patient to die with elevated digoxin levels, and they then contacted the New Jersey Poison Control Center. The Poison Control Center began an investigation, but hospital bureaucracy got involved and moved the investigation internally to save face. It seems the hospital's potential liability was a greater issue than the patients who were dying. Throughout his time at Somerset, Charlie would cop to killing about 19 or 20 people and attempting to murder countless more. But we'll never know for sure because Charlie cannot even remember the names of all the people he killed. Of course not. 
During Somerset's internal investigation, Charlie was grilled about digoxin and his usage, which was significantly higher than any other nurse on staff. Charlie did not stop killing. He did not lay low. His compulsion would not let him. Instead, he began to use insulin again, as well as other drugs he mixed into lethal combinations. Having gotten away with infinity murders over 16 years of nursing, Charlie, it seemed, had no longer any fears of being caught, or he just didn't care if he was at this point. He had recently found out that his girlfriend Kathy was expecting, but they were in such a bad state of their relationship that she didn't necessarily want him to continue living with her, even if she was going to have his baby. So he is now again put into an emotional and stressful situation, which is causing him to turn to this perverted sense of relief of killing other people. When the codes kept coming one after another, Somerset no longer had a choice. They had to turn the investigation over to the police. Detectives Tim Braun and Danny Baldwin took the call. Tim was a seasoned detective sergeant, a married father, while Danny was a passionate newbie, the only black detective in the Somerset prosecutor's office. Tim had been impressed with Danny's work on an elite auto theft task force in Essex and had brought him over to Somerset County as soon as he possibly could. Unfortunately for our intrepid detectives, the hospital gave them almost zero information. They had allegedly been performing this internal investigation for months. And when the detectives go and they're interviewing the lawyer for the hospital who was supposed to be overseeing this investigation, they're like, uh, yeah, here you go. We have a one page printout for you. And they're like, this has been going on for months. You don't have anything else, any records for us, any information, any like transcripts of interviews you've done, nothing. And he's like, that's what we got. That's all we're going to give you. It seemed like they had consulted with the outside authorities to, you know, dot their I's, cross their T's, make it look like they were involving the police in this matter. But they were not going to give them an iota of information that would call into question the hospital's culpability in the situation. So they were like, well, there has to be some record of how people are taking out drugs. And they're like, "Okay, well, we do have this Pixis machine. So they offered them access to those records, but they didn't even tell the detectives about the Cerner database. And they did provide a short list of nurses that potentially were on at the times of the deaths or could have been involved. And that did include Charlie. But they told the detectives that specifically Charlie just seemed kind of like an odd duck. Their money wasn't on him. They thought it was this other guy who was a phlebotomist who, of course, turned out to have nothing to do with the murders. Rude. Added, poor phlebotomist. I know. Added, it's already a hard enough job. I think being a phlebotomist would be super hard when you have little kids and people who don't want that. Yeah, like a pediatric phlebotomist. Oh like my the one gosh. that took Echo's blood. I was like, you're a fucking saint. Yeah. This is like a literally, tough this is job. what you do all day. Really, really tough. Yeah. And then to get thanked for all of that, being blamed for being a serial killer. At this point, they're like, okay, we don't know what to do. So Detective Baldwin decided to pull up Charlie's background record on a hunch. She's just like, I don't know. I'm just, I got a feeling about this guy. So he found out that Charlie had been convicted for criminal trespass. But what's more important was that there was a note in his file from the Pennsylvania State Police. And it turned out that a nurse from Easton Hospital, which I believe was the one with Audemars Schramm, 
had come forward and accused Charlie of overdosing a patient with what else but digoxin. And they are there to investigate a string of digoxin overdoses. So he's like, okay, this is either an insane coincidence or this is the guy or somebody's fucking with me. But like, this has got to be the guy. So Braun and Baldwin canvassed the previous hospitals that Charlie worked at, but were really frustrated about the experience because even in ones that he had worked at only a year, two years, three years earlier, it seems that most of these hospital HR departments almost immediately got rid of or destroyed HR records. So there was no records of what he had been penalized or warned for or his behavioral record. There was nothing. They could just confirm that he had worked for those dates. But when they got to St. Luke's, it was a slightly different story because several of those nurses, remember, had gone to the Pennsylvania State Troopers and they had like banded together, try to get something done. One nurse, Lynn Tester, calculated that while at St. Luke's, Charlie worked only 26% of the hours, but yet he was somehow on hand for 58% of the deaths that happened. Furthermore, when Charlie worked at the CCU, they had averaged somewhere between 20 and 22 code blues a month. And then after he left, there hadn't been a single code for six weeks. Whoa. The state coroners had gotten involved as well, and they had gone through the medical records, and they believed that Charlie may have murdered as many as 50 patients while at St. Luke's alone. So they're like, okay, this is our guy. Now we just have to prove it. We got to catch him in the action. So the detectives went to dig into Somerset's Pixis records, but they were told by the main hospital administrator that the database only held 30 days of records at a time. Convenient. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of the suspicious deaths had occurred over that 30-day period. So it just felt like every time that they were getting close, something, and it was usually hospital bureaucracy, was preventing them from being able to find the evidence that they needed that would actually nail Charlie. As if taunting them, on October 21st, 2003, another person was killed of a digoxin overdose, an electrical engineer named Ed Zizek. But the Pixis report showed that Charlie hadn't touched digoxin during the time frame that he would have needed to remove it to kill Mr. Zizek. Not knowing what to do, but knowing they had to do something to stop the killing, hospital administration fired Charlie, stating that it had to do with inaccuracies on his application. The detectives contacted Pix's corporate at this point. because They're like, we'll just call the company up and say, hey, we need all the records for this one hospital that you guys are involved with. Can you check a main hard drive or a main database and pull these records for me? And the salesman that answered the call was really confused. He was like, sir, is there something wrong with your hospital's machine? Because the 30-day thing isn't a thing. Oh. <gasps> He's like, we've never had that. It should have all of the records of all of the drugs taken out since we installed the software in the program. They were like, sons of a bitch. Oh, I'm so mad right now. Yep. So they went back and they're like, oopsies, we had no idea. How crazy is that? So either they were full on lying to cover their ass or they really did not know how that program worked, which honestly could have is terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying, but it could happen in these huge organizations. It's possible. 
But they should have gotten somebody who knew to tell them. They're not helping them in this investigation at all. It's hindering it every step of the way. So they get the records, all of Charlie's Pixis records from the beginning of his employment. But there was no smoking guns. They were trying to match up the overdoses of digoxin with him taking out the digoxin. And it's just, it's not matching up. So they're like, what the hell? We thought that this was going to be the evidence that we needed. So they're like, we still think it's him. So we're going to interview all of the staff and see if anybody has seen anything odd or somebody has an inside track with him. They can give us some insider information. And they found Amy. Amy wanted nothing to do with this interview. She still felt pretty loyal to Charlie. She knew that he had recently found out that he and Kathy were expecting a baby. And she thought that he had gotten let go because of rumors and innuendo because he was just kind of an odd guy and that he was being bullied. So she's like, this thing is total bullshit. She pulled no punches in her conversation with the detectives. And she told them, quote, that she was royally pissed off about the whole situation. But when they handed her Charlie's Pixis reports, her expression changed a little bit. While Didge might not be there from the night Reverend Gal died, per se, the drug orders were not making sense to a real professional. They hadn't really had an actual nurse look at these records. So she studied it for a little while. She ended up asking them if she could take the records home, where she like went home, poured herself a glass of wine, and we're pouring over these, and she's like trying to make sense of them. But the next day, she talked to the police again, and she said, it's just, it's not adding up. There's just ways that you guys wouldn't see anything wrong, but I can see that things are wrong. Like, the way he's ordering things don't make sense. It's as if you ordered a dozen eggs separately, that you ordered, like, 12 single eggs, the way he's doing things. She said that his Pixis reports were 10 times the length of her own because of this interesting, weird way that he was ordering things. She said she also noted that Charlie, even if he didn't order the dig at the times that people died, he was still ordering it 10 times a month, which she said was more than Amy had ordered in her entire time at the hospital. Jesus. Because he's working in the ICU, too, and I guess that this was not a commonly used drug in the ICU. So she's like, I don't even know what he's using it for. So at that point, she's like, well, have you guys looked and cross-referenced this with his Cerner records to see what patients he's been charting with and which patients he's been looking up? And they were like, what's a Cerner? She's like, the hospital didn't tell you about our database of all of the patients' records and what every nurse has been doing to treat them? And they're like, no. And she's like, you got to be kidding me. Okay, like, we need to talk about that. So at that point, they were like, this has been immensely helpful. Can you carry on helping us out. But if you do, we really don't want you to tell your boss. We really don't want you to tell the hospital because clearly they're trying to thwart us. They're keeping stuff from us. Yeah. They're keeping stuff from us. And you know, she felt a little uncomfortable about it. And she said, you know, I kind of have to think about it. And then she got a phone call like while she's still with the police. And it's from like the main hospital administrator. And she's saying, hey, we know that they did a round of interviews, but if they try to have a follow-up interview with you, you have to have an attorney from the hospital present. And she's like, why? I didn't do anything. And she's like, oh, no, no, we're not worried. Don't worry. It's not about you, but it's just important. It's hospital protocol. You can't talk with the police without a hospital attorney present. She was like, okay, they are really doing something sketchy then. So she got off the, uh, the phone and she's like, they just called and told me I have to have an attorney to talk to you because they're hiding things. And so she's like, okay, like, I don't know how far I want to go down this path, but I'll pull Cerner records. I'll make sure I can translate them to you and then we'll keep talking. 
Amy became the detective's woman on the inside, quickly discovering that canceling drugs and Pixis still gave you access to them. She also discovered something extremely interesting. If you ordered Tylenol, harmless old acetaminophen, then a drawer popped open that also gave you access to digoxin. Oh my God, no. He hadn't had to order dig. If he ordered Tylenol, which he did frequently, then he had access to it. And soon the detectives realized that while the deaths did not match up to Charlie taking out dig, they did perfectly match up to Charlie ordering Tylenol. Pulling up Charlie's Cerner records was almost more chilling. He had not been the meticulous chart keeper that Amy had assumed given his time on the program. No, he was actually a mess at charting. He barely typed a line here and there. But Cerner also kept a record of every patient's chart that Charlie browsed. So anytime he pulled a patient up, it would timestamp and date it that he had been looking at that profile at that time. So what do you think happened to the patients that Charlie had been looking up? I think that he was probably seeing how he could kill them. Yes. And then he would sometimes go back and check to see he'd like open up the computer for the day and be like, so did they die? Following up on his handiwork, Charlie hadn't been using Cerner to chart patients. He had been using it to hunt them. It's disgusting. But actually, like, hopefully this Cerner evidence can help the cops now. 100%. I mean, it tells a real story, a story that you can tell at court. Amy went from pain and denial to pure rage as she realized the truth about what her friend had been doing. She had believed that he was a good nurse. She believed he had taken his oath as seriously as she had. When she turned over the Sterner printouts to the detectives, they asked her if she would take her undercover work a step farther. Would she speak to Charlie and record the conversations? Now, still, though, Amy had to think about this. Anxiety could flare her near-fatal heart condition. She's already under an incredible amount of stress sneaking around because she's sneaking around at the hospital because she's not supposed to be talking to the police. If the hospital found out what she was doing against their explicit orders, she could be fired. She has two young daughters to consider and provide for. I mean, not only does she need to be alive for them, she needs to provide for them, and she needs to keep them safe. So she decided to talk to her 11-year-old daughter and trust her with a very serious conversation. Amy explained the perplexing situation. She admitted that if there wasn't enough evidence, if Charlie didn't end up in jail, or even if he was put in jail but got out, there was a real possibility that he was going to find out that she was the one who put him there and he could come for their family. She knows he's a killer. So 11-year-old Alex took in this strange new landscape. Her mom was working as a spy to catch a serial killer. Could you imagine? Your mom's a nurse. If your mom is like, came home and was like, Andrea, so there's a situation at work and I want your opinion on it. Could you imagine? No, it's terrifying. Terrifying. And so she said, Mom, is this guy really killing people? And Amy said, he really might be, honey. Yes. And brave Alex said, well, then you have to find out, right? Gosh, damn. So crazy. This is a badass fam right here. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I would be so worried for my family. It's tough. And her heart condition. Yeah. Amy went through with it. She called Charlie several times to continue their relationship, build his confidence. I mean, the first couple of phone calls were like, this is such bullshit. I can't believe you're fired. I'm thinking about you. Do you need a reference? 
let's talk, blah, blah. She was super duper supportive. And then eventually she suggested that they should get together to talk about everything that was going on because things were getting out now about the investigation. I guess there was a New York Times piece suggesting that the culprit had already been fired or put on administrative leave and it was a male nurse. And so there was suggestions that it was Charlie already out there. And so she's like, we should get together and talk about this. I'm worried about you. So they agreed to meet at an Italian restaurant for lunch in December of 2003. And after some friendly banter and they ordered some beers and food, Amy approached Charlie very skillfully. She like if you read the transcript, she did such a great job of really, truly. And I think it's because she's such an empathetic person that even though this person did these heinous things, she could still speak to the friend and the person that he had been. And so she very skillfully kind of like wove this whole concerning warm cloak over him and saying, hey, what's going on? Can you tell me? Why would they think this? Why would they have any idea or pin this on you at all? And he basically said, well, I've had these problems at other hospitals, at this hospital, this thing happened, at this hospital, this thing happened. And now because of all of these other incidents and mistakes, now they're pigeonholing me with what's happening at Somerset. And she's like, how on the hell, I've I've been nursing for 14 years and I have never once been accused of killing a patient. How has this happened? Like, maybe, maybe if you are doing this, you should turn yourself in. And Charlie denied nothing. He didn't say anything. He just said, well, if I did that, my life is over. And it's it's really intense. I'm sure that they're going to go into it in the movie. It has to be such a pivotal scene. I didn't want to just like read the transcript to you guys. So I'm trying to paraphrase as best I can. But she is like full of love and she starts crying. She's like, oh, honey, your life is already over. And she said, Charlie, I'm here because I love you. But I'm also here because I know you killed those people. And the best thing you can do is end this. Turn yourself in. And she said that his face completely changed. It was like a, a look went over him. She said he sat differently. His, it was like his eyes. And now his first wife, Adrian, his ex-wife, had said that when she confronted him about the dog, it was the same face, like that his eyes actually drifted away from each other and he had this blank stare. So now Amy is seeing this for the first time. And she said it was the coldest thing she'd ever experienced, not because it was evil or it was a different person. It was just the absence of all the Charlie she knew. It was just this blankness. And then he said to her in a low growl, let me go down fighting. And he took off. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, it's tense. So the the detectives were out in the parking lot. They see Charlie leave. Now they're worried about where she is. And she finally followed and she was shaking, but she was okay. And the police determined that they had enough. There was enough. They needed probably to push him for a confession because there was still a lot of circumstantial evidence. But enough to arrest him. But it was enough for arrest. And also they had to worry about Amy's safety now if he was suspecting that she was an informant. So they arrested him on December 12th, 2003 for the murder of Reverend Gal and the attempted murder of Jin Kyung Han after hours of interrogation, which, by the way, they interrogated him for hours on their own. And they said things like, 
if you don't talk to us, you don't tell us why you did it, then people are going to think you're just a pervert. They're going to think that you were just like jerking off on these dead people, that you were doing it for your own sexual pleasure. They're going to think you're a disgusting monster. You need to confess and tell us your reason. You need to confess and say they were in pain. They were suffering. I was trying to help them. Give us your reason. And they were trying to do that to get him to confess. But he kind of just curled up in a fetal position and was crying and wouldn't speak to them. So they're getting nowhere. So they bring Amy in. I mean, God damn, this woman is doing everything. And they're like, can you talk to him about coming clean? And she ended up speaking to him. And apparently he was cold and she gave him her cardigan. And she was like, I love you, but it's time. You have to tell them what you did. And with Amy's cardigan wrapped around his shoulders, he finally cracked and he ended up confessing. Whoa. He spent the next seven hours confessing, ultimately admitting to 40 victims that he had killed. Jesus. So he remembered 40. 40. So technically they have confirmed 29 of those 40. However, they believe that there may be up to 400 victims. So they had just been hoping for one confession, like just Reverend Gal. And instead, they got 40. So that was more than enough to put Charlie away for life. Charlie ended up pleading guilty to the murders in order to take the death penalty off of the table. While he was awaiting sentencing, Charlie once more caused a stir by offering to donate his kidney to a man in need, a man who happened to be his estranged girlfriend Kathy's brother, Ernie Peckham. Ernie had exhausted all other avenues and was certainly going to die without a transplant. Unfortunately, no one in Ernie's family was medically eligible to donate. Ernie, in desperation, wrote to Charlie, who agreed to be tested and to donate to Ernie if it was a match. And unbelievably, with the odds of, like, winning the lottery, Charlie was a match. Whoa. Yeah, but he needed to get permission to do this because he's in prison now. And the public had a lot to say about whether he would be able to donate this kidney. There was an outcry that Charlie, who had been dubbed the Angel of Darkness, was once more trying to play God. He was trying to manipulate the system, the public. Some of the victim's family members were horrified about this. He had killed their loved ones, a bunch of people, and now he felt like it could be washed away, his sin, by donating this kidney. But well in this limbo of figuring out whether or not he'd be actually able to donate this kidney, he also had to finally face sentencing. Now, he hated the judge who was presiding over the sentencing due to comments that this particular judge had made in a newspaper. So Charlie, as soon as he got started, began reciting per memory the things that this judge had said about him in the newspaper and screaming that the judge had to step down based on making these comments. And the judge, it was a guy named Judge Platt, denied his motion to recuse, but Charlie wouldn't stop screaming. He kept screaming over and over again, Your Honor, you need to step down. Your Honor, you have to step down. Your Honor, you need to stop down. And he would not stop. They couldn't move forward with the proceedings because he kept yelling, so much so that they put this like mesh mask on him, like this Hannibal Lecter style mask that is used to prevent people from spitting. Oh, my God. Yeah. Defendants from like spitting on the bailiffs and the court officials. But it's just a mesh mask. So you could still hear him. And he kept screaming. And now this is a sentencing where their victim impact 
statements being read. So these are the loved ones of the people he murdered trying to tell their stories and trying to talk directly to them and, and tell the court how much it feels that they have to go through this. And he's screaming over them. They eventually duct taped his mouth shut. But he still didn't shut up. He's like screaming through it, through the duct tape. Which is like, I don't care how many kidneys you give. You're a piece of shit if you do that. If you're going to deny the victims the opportunity to make peace and get to communicate and have some finality to their experience, then you're a piece of shit. So Julie Sanders, who was a friend of one of his victims, said, I think he intentionally meant disrespect to everyone in that courtroom. He says he is a compassionate man. He says he wants to donate a kidney to save someone's life. He wants to do it out of compassion. Where's the compassion now? Sanders stabbed her finger at, at the hole in the air where Colin had been. I needed to say something to him. Does he even know what he did? Does he even know what he's done to our lives? Jesus. Ugh. So Charles Cullen was sentenced to 18 consecutive life sentences. He has worked with the authorities to identify more victims. They currently believe, like I said, that he have, may have killed up to 400 people. He is widely considered the most prolific serial killer in recorded history. He was able to donate the kidney after all, and he did so in the cover of darkness under a fake name and very little fanfare. So what good came of this? This was the big question that inspired this story. The New Jersey legislature passed two new measures in reaction to Charlie's case. The Patient Safety Act increased the responsibility of hospitals to report all serious preventable adverse events that occur at their medical center to the Department of Health and Senior Services. This was passed in 2004. The next year, it was supplemented by the Enhancement Act that required hospitals to report to the Division of Consumer Affairs, including the Board of Nursing, certain facts about healthcare professionals and that they have to keep records of all complaints and disciplinary records for at least seven years. These measures were also adopted by 35 other states. So that's a start. That's a good start. To end on a happier note, Amy is alive, beautiful, and thriving to this day. She is now a Reiki master, hypnotherapist, mediation instructor, past life regressor, and more. You can read more about her work and life at the website amythegoodnurse.com. She participated in the making of the Netflix movie The Good Nurse and did an interview for People Magazine with Jessica Chastain, who plays her in the film. Jessica Chastain told People Magazine that Amy Loughran is an inspiration. She said, So often in films about serial killers, we're celebrating aggression as the way to stop the violence. And rarely do we acknowledge love and understanding that can heal the pain. Amy didn't use any aggressive tactics. She used her heart to find a way forward. There's a scene at the end of the movie where she approaches Charlie with humanity, compassion, empathy, and love. And that really is her superpower. It's what allows for this resolution to come about and for people to start to heal, which is so true. I really, I do, I concur. I mean, also, of course, the tireless work of those exemplary detectives that had been thwarted at every step of the way and kept fighting. But it was Amy both times who broke through to Charlie. It's clear that this man who was starved for love, starved for affection, all he needed was to hear, I love you, to have the tender touch of somebody put a sweater over his cold shoulders to tell the truth. So love really is maybe mightier than hate. I mean, it definitely is. <laughs> it's just sadly 
sometimes doesn't overcome the acts of violence that hateful people do. Oh, yeah. It's very hard to have empathy for this person. Absolutely. You know, we try. We try to humanize everyone who we talk about on our show, but it's very difficult. And that's why we end up doing a lot of mocking of murderers for the most part. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you for inspiring this. And I look forward to watching the movie with you. Maybe we can even do it for a Patreon. A watch party? A watch party, per se? Per se? Well, we'll talk about it. We'll decide. So thanks for hanging in there with us, guys, for this very different type of love murder today. In conclusion, nurses are badasses. Thank you to all of you nurses and medical professionals out there, including Andy's wonderful mother. Yep. And <laughs> I guess maybe in life we should just try empathy first. Let's try empathy. I think that's a wonderful way to end this episode, Andrea. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Thank you, guys. Love ya. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.